Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're talking about Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. God, Andy, this movie's made so much money this weekend. <laughs> it's been Everybody, massive. Everybody is going to see this movie. We have to talk about its incredible opening. We're going to talk about it, of course. We went and saw it. We're not doing any spoilers. We don't do that on this show. We're also going to talk about Triangle of Sadness, a Swedish comedy. I don't know where director Ruben Oslin hails from, uh, but it's on Hulu. It came out last year, and it's surprisingly biting, I think, though it does uh, have something. Palm Door winner. Palm Door winner. Much better introduction than I could ever make. Yes. Uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about Disney. Uh, Elemental comes out in a couple weeks, and critics are not it doesn't it's not looking good and i want to talk about that in regards to pixar i got a little history with disney fans of the show will know we'll talk about it before we get to all that though we talk about the news our first story this week uh new fast and furious movie starring dwayne johnson in development at universal boo (laughs) boo (laughs) (laughs) no listen listen we, we like dwayne johnson just fine okay but like we admittedly are not big fans of the fast franchise uh at least we saw fast nine we saw fast x it's fine but i guess they're wrapping these things up andy what what is this about dwayne johnson getting his own movie well Dwayne Johnson has, in the last couple of years, kind of fumbled his Hollywood bag, and he, uh, you know, he put all his chips into Black Adam, and like, be he he thought he was going to be like head of DC or be a big like mover and shaker over there. Uh, Black Adam comes out and is totally mediocre, does bad business, uh, and he doesn't really have like the kind of money making power he did just not five years ago. Uh, so he's come crawling back to the Fast and Furious franchise, which he had said he'd never work with Vin Diesel again. He's coming back. He's going to have a solo movie that's uh, it, it's not it's not um, a sequel to uh, Hobbs and Shaw, which was a spinoff they did. It's going to actually be a bridge between Fast X and Fast X Part Two, which means we're getting another like two three years of these movies. I was hoping they were going to wrap it up uh, next year, but. Uh, the Rock coming back for more Fast and Furious action. Vin Diesel's been talking about there being more Fast and Furious movies on the uh, Fast X red carpet. He infamously said they may do another like three. He's talked about getting like an all gals edition together. He wants to do spinoffs with Ludacris and Jason Statham. And that's all well and good. And Dwayne Johnson will definitely bring like some, some, some he'll, he'll sell some tickets. All right. He'll put some butts in seats. But, like, my God, he had a horrifically public falling out <laughs> with Vin Diesel in the franchise. There are Instagram posts. The, the, the stories from the sets. When you watch the movie, like, the two guys, like, never really size each other. Like, it's weird, like, how the two of them got along publicly. And this all kind of culminated when the film came out. And he said, I'm not doing any more of them. It was a really weird falling out. Uh, then right before Fast X came out, uh, Vin Diesel made a plea to have Dwayne Johnson return to the franchise. He said, brother, you got to come back on Instagram. It was a whole thing. And uh, The Rock didn't respond, which is in perfect form for The Rock. But now that means one of two things. Either A, that was a whole manufactured bit, which like gross. Or B, uh, he totally went for it and was <laughs> this people reach out and was like yeah i need a paycheck and now he's come crawling back to universal in the fast and furious franchise uh because black adam didn't work out it's a sad story andy tremendous bag fumble huge fumbling (laughs) of the bag right like in front of god and cinema and everybody right Uh, what what, what do you think it's truly amusing and funny and also uh, strange that, again, the Fast and Furious franchise just has so much uh, longstanding power. And maybe this is what Vin Diesel meant when he said there were going to be th- it was going to be a three part finale is the the Hobbs movie was going to be in between 
the two fast movies uh to finish this thing off before again you know all the spinoffs like vin diesel you there's all these uh, interviews of him on the web on the red carpet like totally sloshed like like slurred his words <laughs> talking about we just we just gotta get through this so we can get to the spinoffs um we really don't but it's uh it's funny to see someone of dwayne johnson's stature be humbled and have to come back and be a team player I just want to say before I move on from this, I hate that this is between the Fast X and the next Fast movie. Not only because it extends that stupid timeline, but because then Dwayne Johnson gets to like get out on the world stage and act all big man when it does great numbers and be like, look at me putting out a movie that rocks. And it's like literally riding the high of a franchise you had since bailed on. Like that, that's super lame. That'd be like if Gwyneth Paltrow was bragging about Avengers Endgame numbers because she's in it for 10 minutes. And like, I know he's going to be in his own movie and I'm sure he's going to do his own stunts and everything. But like, dude, I, I can't anymore with these big ass personalities, like talking mad game <laughs> and acting like there's something so much bigger than like just an easy easy formulaic return anyway like i i shouldn't rag on the fast franchise they're fine we saw them uh, our fast extra just a few weeks ago if you wanted to check that out please please do uh anything else on this one before i jump into oppenheimer andy no i'm ready to keep going oppenheimer gets an r rating i don't believe it this had been a rumor on the internet for a minute that oppenheimer the three-hour christopher nolan half black and white biopic about j robert oppenheimer the inventor of the atomic bomb uh, may be rated r and we said there's no way there's no way universal would green light a three-hour atomic bomb biopic that's in half black and white whatever uh that also is strictly limited to like audiences that that you know want to see some hardcore content i mean hardcore is what it does on movies nowadays i don't know what i'm saying anymore andy what do you think about this really surprising so pg-13 is the kind of goldilocks rating that every all the studios want because everyone can see it you can take the kids kids way under 13 will generally think of, of parents who take their kids to see all the superhero stuff all the way through adults, uh, PG-13 is what you want for a big blockbuster film. It, it's what what is going to get net you the most money. Um, and now you have Oppenheimer coming out again, uh, same day as Barbie, going up against Barbie with an R rating. And I, I thought maybe this was going to you know sh- show some really violent images about like the horrors of atomic warfare. Apparently, it, it's like sex and nudity so there's there's like some sex scenes that are going to make Oppenheimer crawl into the the R rating which is just baffling to me it's like Nolan is trying to sabotage his own movie it's it's you know I, I think this is a reflection of like just how bad Universal wanted Nolan after he left Warner Brothers following Tenet's uh, release uh, you know Nolan did not like that Warner Brothers uh, announced like day and date during COVID uh, for HBO they said all of our theatrical features in what 2021 2020 are going to be pushing straight to uh, HBO same day and he was not a fan of that he spoke very publicly about it he did interviews this sucks this is hurting cinema he's all about seeing things on the big screen uh then tenet of course uh is in limbo following covid and he wants it to come out and they're like we're not sure and he really convinces them it's got to happen this is the time and it comes out and goes nowhere or went you know not really as big as it should have uh following that um he met, jumped to universal who were very excited to get him away from warner brothers uh and now it seems they have greenlit like what all signs point to is far too high concept for 
major audiences. A big like, summer release, yeah. It reminds me of like The Northman and people being like, that movie's going to be huge nationally. And it's like, it, it's kind of, it's too, no. Like, <laughs> I don't think people go for this. They go for Dwayne Johnson's Fast and Furious 11. Like, those are going to be the things <laughs> people are turning out for. Uh, like Oppenheimer may not be it, which is particularly funny given this other little rumor uh, we've been hearing <laughs> on corners of the internet that is a rumor. I should say we don't we don't have any evidence of this being true, but uh, reportedly Tom Cruise is mighty pissed at Christopher Nolan because <laughs> <laughs> Mission Impossible Seven: Dead Reckoning Part One comes out what like two weeks before Oppenheimer. And Oppenheimer and Universal have locked down every IMAX screen in the country for a three-week exclusive run of Oppenheimer, which means Tom Cruise's big-budget blockbuster gets 14 days in IMAX theaters before it's unavailable. That's it. That's the whole. That's the whole run. It'll never be out there again. Like crazy. It's a tale of two IMAX films. Um, IMAX screens are f- much fewer. There's only usually like one or two in in every major city. There are a big part of the box office now um they generally they charge so much more for for imax and it's popular uh it's a big money maker and so everyone wants their film and usually a movie will only be in in imax like a week or two it it is not much i remember i missed uh i think it was eternals and uh, dune uh, yeah i missed dune in imax because eternals was there uh two weeks later uh so it's imax is a huge deal and there's only so many theaters so it's it's funny to watch uh, these big personalities, Tom Cruise and Christopher Nolan, uh, duke out about who gets the screen. Yeah. Um, one thing's for sure, Oppenheimer is definitely going to be big on IMAX. Uh, this IMAX print of Oppenheimer is running in two versions, 35mm and 70mm, alongside digital, of course. The 70mm IMAX is the version Christopher Nolan says you've got to see it in. It is the number one recommended way, is the biggest possible way to see it, and there are only 25 screens in the United States running this print because there are only 25 real 70 millimeter IMAX projectors in the United States. Uh, it's nuts. There's a list online. The 70 millimeter IMAX prints are reportedly 600 pounds and 11 miles long laid end to end 11 miles of movie, which is bananas. Not only because of the bigger frame of the 70 millimeter IMAX, but also just the length of the film at three hours. And I can tell you confidently here on this show, that your boys at off script and I somehow, like by grace of God, have tickets to the 70 millimeter IMAX show. We got tickets two months in advance. <laughs> Dude, 60 days in advance. The day the day tickets went on sale, we managed to grab a seat. Uh one of these the one of these theaters is shockingly close to us. So right here on off script, come July, we're covering Oppenheimer. We're covering it the biggest way possible. It's gonna be insane. You've got to come back for the review. Great opportunity to say, subscribe to the show to get to get the review straight to your phone when it comes out and are you stoked to see oppenheimer a little more so maybe than like i don't know what what the r rating might 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 incur i mean i'm excited the same way i'm excited for um killers of the flower moon like i i'm excited for the for the art house stuff that usually comes out in the fall i i just hate that it's it's probably not going to do very well i think it's going to get crushed by barbie I really, really do. Um, again, the R rating hurt, hurts, hurts that people aren't going to take their kids to a three-hour meditative biopic about you know the arms race of the 1940s. It's just, it's just a dry t- topic, no matter how you slice it. Yeah, I, I don't know where exactly Oppenheimer is headed. I think it's very funny that Tom Cruise is mad that a summer blockbuster is coming out 
even near his summer blockbuster. Like that's hilarious. From the man who was who who who's the man who couldn't go to the Academy Awards, Jesus, comes like, I'm mad that a blockbuster's coming out two weeks after my blockbuster. It's amazing. The the thinnest of hands, like paper hands cruise. Uh <laughs> And also, I do want to say Oppenheimer is definitely going to get beat by Barbie, in my humble opinion. We'll see, though. Uh, with that, we need to move into uh, our last story before we talk about Spider-Man. Uh, speaking of Spider-Man, uh, this movie made so much money. Dude, this movie made so much money. <laughs> like, I know I know we cover movies that make money on this show, but, like, this this is a stone-cold stunner. And you want to give them the numbers? So let me start off with what this was projected to make uh, across the Spider-Verse was projected to make between 50 and $60 million over the weekend. It came in at double at 120 million uh, over 200 million uh, internationally. Uh, I believe. Yeah. 208 million. Uh, huge, huge hit blowing away expectations. Expectations. Usually if you do like 10, million dollars like that's more than if you do 10 million dollars more than what you're projected usually that's a huge win so so if you're projected to make 50 you come in at 60 that's a huge that's a huge movie and it came in at double that um mass it's already made as much money as the first movie and it's uh it's only going to be more huge it's it's going to have legs i i think and it's going to be one of the big movies of the summer so Andy and I try to keep a, just a finger on the box office every week on the show, just kind of see what's going on. And and I think we expected, like everybody else, that this movie was going to do well. Um, I couldn't believe how many people were so, were sitting in seats in my theater like Monday night, because I saw this late. I saw this just last night. Uh, Andy saw it Friday, which well, you saw it Thursday, I think, right? Like you jumped on Friday, it. No, I saw it Friday, but it was packed. Yeah, it was packed. And then come Monday, like also packed. And I saw it in a smaller town than Andy did. Um, and those are the kind of movies that really jump out at you, at us. Like we watch a lot of movies on this show. Anytime like we're sitting in a theater that is just wall to wall, it's like man, people are really nuts about this. Like, and it, it shows this movie made fifty million dollars in the United States alone on an opening day. One day, fifty million dollars, over two hundred million dollars in one weekend globally. It only cost a hundred million to make. So in three days, in seventy two hours of publication, you made double your money. Like that is one of the greatest investments in United States history. <laughs> I can't believe how well this movie's done. Uh, I, I I didn't even expect it to do this well. Like I know the first movie was a banger, but like a lot of that was word of mouth. I think people were a little skeptical when it came out. Like, oh, okay, yeah, it's it's a cool animated Spider-Man feature, but like, what's it about? But like, it has so grown past that since then, and people are voracious for this stuff. Uh, I can't believe Sony is the one holding the tiger by the tail here. Like. <laughs> Sony Studios, creators of the Emoji Movie, like made and Morbius, dude, yeah, like Venom (laughs) Two made this, like insanity. Um, But in partnership with Marvel, like they managed to pull off something really, really incredible. Good God, Uh, and what a film it is! Yeah, Um, and I also wanted to point out that uh, the Little Mermaid came in at at number two, not surprising, but uh, Guardian slid into the number three spot up. Uh, past fast x which is gonna be on digital this friday so like two maybe three weeks since it came out um the fast and furious movie is already gonna be available to rent because it is not doing particularly well um domestically it is doing great numbers abroad but i just thought that was pretty funny i am so impressed with this movie i i I, uh, 
Well, we need to talk about it. Now it's time to talk about it. We spent too much on the time on news anyway. Let's talk about it. Uh, I'm going to be taking the summary on this, so please excuse my clumsy delivery. The movie is uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. You can't stop me now! You can't run forever, kid! Sorry, the movie is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. <laughs> Admittedly, careful, uh, a careful. strange a strange name scheme that's a little hard to remember for old people like me. But Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse uh, is the sequel to 2018 Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. In that film, we met Miles Morales, mild-mannered student uh, in Brooklyn who gets bit by a radioactive spider and becomes Spider-Man uh, in a way that people don't expect, right? Because he doesn't have the traditional Peter Parker story. And in that movie, he opens up a uh, a bit of a, like a, a small a small crack into the Spider-Verse, multiverse, what have you, where a bunch of villains come out, he fights them alongside Peter B. Parker and Gwen Stacy from other universes, and then they take off, and that's the movie. Well, Across the Spider-Verse comes out uh, four years later, but only one year and four months later in the film. Uh, Miles is a little older, a little taller, a little bit more rugged, and he's been Spider-Man in this whole time. And his parents have no idea, right? He couldn't possibly tell them. Classic Spider-Man conundrum, right? Like, I'm saving the world, but also have to be a student. Uh, and it's starting to show that something is wrong with Miles. Well, right right around when they're starting to get into it, uh, a multiverse opens up again. Uh, through a strange series of events, uh, Miles is reunited with some of his friends and some newcomers uh, to face a surprisingly challenging foe in what is proven to be one of the most exciting films of the year and one of the most exciting animated features of the year. The movie is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Andy, what'd you think? So... I wanted to talk about, uh, I was a little skeptical going in, par- partially because of the runtime. It, it's a lot longer than the first movie. It's two hours, 20 minutes. Um, so I was a little skeptical of that. I had also heard some kind of hyperbolic comparisons. Like one of the things I he- heard before going in that it was it was like the dark night of Spider-Man movies. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let, let's calm our horses. Let's calm our horses. Um, and I was completely blown away. <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was, my eyes were glued to to the screen uh, it's a little slow in kind of the first act but once it gets going like i couldn't get up. i had to go to the bathroom so bad and th- i was just like I, there's nowhere to get up because there's so much excite excitement happening and it's just like the action the art style the music the the drama like they nailed so much and you know it, it's the first one is is a masterpiece i i think and it would be hard to live up to that and I think they've managed to do that. And like all great sequels, um, they've gone beyond. They, they've made it bigger. They've, and both in terms of like scale, but also story, which is a really hard thing to do. So really enjoyed it. Let's get into why. Yeah, uh, I was really impressed with this movie. Like I was, I told Andy, I might've been a little overhyped and even I walked away thinking like, this is one of the coolest features of the year. Um, Sony has managed to tap into something really special. Like with these movies, um, you have a really great character, right, in a familiar world. Or great characters, I should say, really, uh, especially after this film. Like in, in a very familiar setting, right? Spider-Man, New York, comics, superheroes, right? Uh, a timely topic, uh, uh, hero movies in 2023. Um, and a brilliant, 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 brilliant visual animated style. Like that that has not only like changed like how many studios are approaching these movies, um, but has grown on audiences who who are clearly hungry for more. Um, I really want to talk about the visuals of this movie. We can't talk about any of that before we're getting to the plot. And I want to keep it light. Uh, we're talking about the plot because I think the less you know, the better. Um, I, you know, for for what is this? A, a two hour, two hour, twenty minute feature. It's one of the longest. I think it's the longest 
big budget animated Hollywood theatrical release uh, for an animated film ever. Two hours, 20 minutes is like insane runtime for an animated feature. Uh, And at that time, I thought, man, this feels like it's going to be too big and too complicated. Um, Andy, did you feel that way? Did did you feel like there was too much going on in Across the Spider-Verse or were you hungry for more? Well, yeah, yes and and no. There are longer sequences than I had expected. Uh, Spider-Gwen, um, voiced by Haley Seinfeld, gets a lot of screen time and she gets a lot of story. She actually kind of opens the film. Uh, there's And there's a very long kind of action and emotional sequence with just her. And, it, and it, to the point where I was like, is this going to be like Spider-Gwen's movie? Like she, It's like surprise. It's, it's about her. And that's not what happens, but it's a pretty long intro. It's like fifteen, maybe twenty minutes, and then you, then the credits or then the like the opening titles hit. Um, so there, there's just a lot of story, but I don't think that that's a bad thing. They're really trying to give both Miles and and Gwen Stacy some really just comp- complex character arcs. Um, and there are some pretty long action sequences, but man, when it gets going, like, like there's this huge chase in the, in the middle, kind of the midpoint of the film that that you can see part of in the trailers. Um, I mean, man, once it gets going, you're just with it. It it, it reminded me of that that old that old hucksterism of like pay for the whole ch- pay for the whole seat, but you'll only need the edge. You'll only need the edge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 big time. Uh, I I definitely think like jumping into the multiverse stuff is complicated, like in superhero movies nowadays. And a lot of want to do it. I, I mean, we're, in two weeks, we got The Flash, which is doing multiverse stuff. Uh, most of Marvel's features are doing multiverse kind of stuff. The idea of like, you know, new new worlds and new universes where things are a little different can get messy. And I can comfortably say like Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse manages to thread the needle perfect. It is not too complicated. Uh, it does get a little, a little big concept, but then it like shrinks right back down to like a comfortable place in plot, right? When it starts to feel too much like by applying pressure on our characters right like and like any good hero's journey is want to do uh miles is much more like eyes wide open in this movie uh he's getting to see a lot more and go to a lot of new places and gwen is uh, not only along for the ride but is like comfortably like second protagonist material i think in this feature uh with a really great story like i actually really liked her content a lot um, combined with like a lot of good action sequences makes for a surprisingly good two hour, 20 minute romp. Uh, settings are a lot of fun too. Like not only are we in Brooklyn, but we're in alternate New York cities. We're on alternate earths, alternate universes, spaces between universes. And all of that makes for like great places to not only have like visual distinction and exciting, like cultural inclusion of like <laughs> different, diff- different aspects of humanity, which is really nice. Uh, but also, uh, have fantastic action sequences, really great work that are really busy, but visually satisfying in a way like few animated films are able to pull off. I think, uh, the action is so stellar in this. Yeah. Like we said, I said, we, we get a big action sequence at the beginning with, uh, primarily, uh, spider Gwen, which is really great. And the, there's a massive chase sequence in, in the middle of, of the film where in the, in the trailer, you see, all basically all the Spider-Men from all the universes trying to to capture and chase um, Miles, and it's an incredible sequence. And it it just like it's full of jokes, it's full of actions, it's full of humor. And there's it also serves the story. It's not just there to to be there. Um, and then we also have you know a couple of big climaxes. Um, there there is a kind of a subplot of a character called the Spot. 
that we meet very early on, who's like a the character that, that can produce holes and can kind of reach like you know he puts up a hole and he can step into a house or into he tries to rob an atm at one point um and he's kind he's trying to be miles as uh kind of nemesis but he's kind of a joke but he's someone that's slowly getting more and more powerful as the the film goes goes on and it's an it's an interesting kind of subplot that we see kind of just simmer in the in the background it's funny because this movie was produced by uh, phil lord and chris miller um who were responsible for the previous film uh, and also notably like the Lego movie recent, which wasn't that long ago. I guess it was now, but um, all really funny comedies that like families seem to really enjoy. Um, and notably in another film they produced, the, the Lego Batman movie, uh, Zach Galifianakis' Joker in that feature has the same gag as the spot in this movie. Uh, not that it doesn't work. It's, it's funny twice uh, that he wants to be the superhero's nemesis and the superhero's like, you're not my nemesis. You're not that important to me at all. And they're like kind of heartbroken about it. So they're like, like, well, syndrome. I'm going to, yeah, I'm, I'm going to rally and do the real bad thing now just to show you how bad I really am. Like, and I love it. Like, it makes Spot like a surprisingly fun character, voiced by Jason Schwartzman, uh, who who doesn't actually get that much time in the feature, uh, but ends up being like a really bright Spot. Uh, pun intended. There, yeah, yeah. I, I meant for that one. That was intentional. That's um, a it's a it's a good time to get into our our cast. Um, we we have the return of of course uh, Shamik Moore as Miles Morales and Haley Seinfeld as Gwen Stacy, but we have a number of of newcomers uh, that that are a lot of fun. We have. Uh, the great Daniel Kaluuya as uh, Spider Punk, um, who's very much in the in the punk like kind of stereotype. Who's like British anti-establishment, like very for like kind of from the eighties. Um, great characters, uh, like you said, Jason Schwartzman. Well, uh, Issa Rae is in this as uh, a Spider Person as well, Spider Woman, um, and okay, <laughs> what did Oscar Isaac, of course, as uh, the new hero uh uh, miguel o'hara who seems to be kind of uh controlling or be be in charge of of the the great multiverse and a a lot of uh kind of overarching uh decisions so a a lot of new new voices uh to just fill out the cast and um it's, it's a lot of fun I, I think this movie does a really good job of leaning on some of its older cast effectively. Like Gwen Stacy gets a ton of time in the front. Meanwhile, like some of the others, like Peter B. Parker or like uh, the anime one, Penny Parker uh, from Spider-Man, yeah. like the previous Spider-Man movie. Uh, like they get a little bit of time. Uh, Par- <laughs> Peter B. Parker gets kind of shafted in this movie. <laughs> he's, he's pushed way to the background, but like, I think that's fine. It doesn't hurt the plot. Uh, if anything, it gives us more time with Gwen Stacy. But more importantly, like we get uh, this wonderful new cast of Spider People, who are all fun in their own ways. Like even like Andy Samberg's like, like uh, I should say obnoxious like Scarlet Spider or Issa Rae's like surprisingly <laughs> charming like Spider Woman. Uh, of course, Dana Kluge as Hobie Brown needs to be mentioned. He's so cool, dude. I saw one of the animators on Twitter that was like, we all knew you were going to like this character. It's fine. Everybody can like him. <laughs> he's like, he's the most likable character in the movie. He's great. Um, like a lot of fun. Even like Oscar Isaac's Miguel O'Hara is like really cool and unique. Like the, the, the creativity that comes from like the multiple spider people is just, just as exciting. I think as the visuals in the film. Right. Which is a perfect <laughs> stepping point in, into that. Um, we, we get, 
the first film was groundbreaking in its visuals because it looked like a living comic book. Uh, you know, it had those kind of spots and, and lines and it had uh, t- words pop up uh, where, where you kind of needed them. And it, it had a lot of like, let's do let's do this again. And they would flip through the, the pages of the, of the comic. So we get a lot of that, but it, it has somehow raised the stakes or just raised the bar in the art style in that every universe just kind of looks drastically different. And this is something that something like um, Doctor Strange's Multiverse of Madness completely failed to do. Everyone in that that movie looked the same except had a different haircut. Um, but for instance, in Gwen <laughs> Stacy's world, it everything is like watercolor. Like the background is it. And, and you can see, visually see, like the, the paint kind of dripping down the back of the screen wherever whenever we're in her world. And we see the background also changing color as like, her mood changes, and as the the drama on the screen it kind of unfolds, and then that's vastly different from uh, Spider Man India's world, completely different art style. But then also things like uh, Spider Punk Hobie Brown has completely different, like just his character is animated completely different at a different frame rate uh, from everyone else, and so like they've just raised the bar uh, of the art style and the animation in in a way I was not expecting it at all. Yeah, like a, a stunning commitment to visual clarity here. And also, like, fortunately, it's not too much. There are there are nice segments in the film where things slow down. Like, every movie can't just be action all the time. And that actually helps ground it a lot, I think, for, like, your big action sequences. Because some of these sequences are, like, 20 minutes long. Like, they are hearty. And they are busy. And they're so much fun. And, like, you can't even keep up with what's going on, which I think makes rewatchability, like, excellent. Like, just to go back and kind of just get another pass at, like, what this, this thing that flew by you the first time through. Um, combining styles, I think, is really clever, especially when they clash early. Uh, one of the villains from a different universe shows up in Gwen Stacy's. And they look so different that your eye is just immediately drawn to them on the screen. <laughs> like, like, you're just staring at them, trying to, like, get, get a look at, like, what this what this guy is um, because he so stands out from like the world that he's in. And that's a really clever way to take on. I think like this combining of universes. Um, Yeah. Spider-Man India's got the exact same thing. Like it's, it's so cool looking and thoughtful and, and the music is neat. Soundtrack's great. I feel like I'm running out of things to say without talking in circles here, Andy. What what do you think? Well, um, I wanted to talk about the music. Uh, fantastic score again by Daniel Pemberton, um, who did the, who scored the first film, and and I love and I really like the score in the in the first film. It has really memorable themes. But I think what I liked uh, a lot that he does in this uh, and that he did in the first film is that different characters have completely different soundscapes. It's not like uh, you know we call it in in music uh, we call this like the light motif and you know, you can think of that as like the force theme or like Darth Vader's march the, these really well known things but those are all kind of orchestral scoring in this different characters will just have completely different sounds like uh, Prowler for instance he has this like this hard like synth thing going on and this spot does too and if you listen closely like Gwen Stacy is is like a rock and roll like because she plays in a rock band and so she just has completely different sounds and all and if you listen closely all the characters are a little bit different sometimes a lot different um from each other and so that complements like the visual differences that we're seeing on screen yeah like i did want to ask one more thing before i move off this uh this is a part one of two like i don't think anybody's surprised by that like it doesn't exactly advertise it in the ad or on the poster or anything but like if you google it it, it it's on there it's not a big deal um and it is also a sequel right 
I I think one of the worst potentially the the only crime this movie might commit is I think it might have set the bar too high. Like how how does three go taller than this? You know what I mean? Like the hype is going to be so off the charts. People are going to be so overexcited. <laughs> it's, it's a First, real big real big bar, man. When it ended, I, I can't remember the last time I saw a movie and I was so excited when it ended. Like I I was so high. I was ready for another hour, and then it says like to be continued. And I was like, oh my god, no! I need more. And right now, pump it into my veins. Like it it. Had me so excited, and you know, people. Uh, I've heard comparisons to like Empire Strikes Back, that that kind of of cliffhanger of, oh no, what what do we do now? Where is it? Where is this going to go? I think it does have a high bar. I think it can reach it, but um, man, I, I can't remember being that, like I said that excited at the end end of a film. And I was I was telling Zach before the show, I I've been like, uh, you know, looking on YouTube for like. The, the grainiest cell phone footage of people like you know recording the end of the movie just to go back and watch like some of the clips that that, that i really loved um yeah it's gonna be huge i think yeah uh i i was gonna say when i saw it uh just yesterday i saw it i saw it in a smaller part of town and it was still like wall-to-wall packed we saw it on the biggest screen we could and when the movie ended like a bunch of people gasped one guy went like three seats back. He goes, "Hell yeah!" And then everybody starts <laughs> clapping. <laughs> it was it was a great time with an audience. Like, and no no kid was talking in that theater. Everybody's glued to the screen. Like, it's just such a dude. Like, across the Spider Verse is so worth your time. Uh, Andy, you ready for recommendations? It, yes, but real quick, I, I wanted to say about the end. A lot of times, a, a cliffhanger ending is um, can go both ways. It it can. Be like it can just end in eye rolling and size and not be exciting at all. I'm thinking of like the end of the Matrix Reloaded when there's this like boom, 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 and you're like, oh, it's not really that <laughs> that exciting. And yeah. this was the exact opposite of it. I like I was so hype, um, even when it ended. Yeah, uh, Andy, would you recommend Spider Man Across the Spider Verse? Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. ringing w- endorsement. Run, don't walk. Uh, <laughs> to the theater. I was going to see, like, I could have watched it again the next day or the day after that. I'm pro- probably, I definitely want to see it again in theater because it was just such a great cinematic moment. Uh, great performances. I mean, just raise the bar, like, you know, Terminator 2 style. Like, it's bigger, it's bolder, it, uh, you know, both in terms of visuals, but also the story and the action. And it's just, it really blew me away for a movie I was already, you know, pretty kind of excited about. Yeah, uh, I am in the same boat. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is an absurd amount of fun. Like, please go see this movie. See it on the biggest screen, loudest screen you can. Take as many friends as you can. It reminds me a little of, like, the buzz I felt after watching, like, like Top Gun, where you're just like, it was so much fun to enjoy going to the theater to watch and made the whole experience so good. Like, everybody, it feels like everyone's talking about it. Like, it's so cool, man. Like, you should absolutely go see this movie. Please go see it before it's out of theaters. Rush. <laughs> Run to the theater. Uh, that's Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. I, Andy, I can't believe they stuck the landing. Like, and, and and so much more so than simply just like making an acceptable sequel. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's, ra- it's, ra- it's what's really rare is when you're hyped for a movie and not only does it meet, but it exceeds. Like I can count on one hand the number of movies that I've been incredibly excited about that actually delivered and far beyond my expectations. 
Yeah, it's bananas. Like I, I, I think the world of this studio. I can't wait to see what they do next. Um, I hope they make five more of these movies and not just one. Uh, with that, we should move into our next segment. Andy, you want to, uh, you want to intro this? It's time for the death of cinema. So we're so, going to be talking about Disney. <laughs> Disney, yes. Disney and uh, Pixar. Um, they're in trouble somewhat. Um, I, I have a longstanding th- theory that uh, Disney's trying to shuttle the the entire Pixar studio, um, that they're kind of being sabotaged. But that's not what we're going to get into just, just now. Zach, what's all this about? So Disney is Disney just last weekend cut off uh, 75 Pixar executives heads. Uh, They rolled them down Wall Street and told all the stockholders, look, look, we're changing. Things are things are things are are, are going in a different direction because it seems like everybody is aware that Elemental Pixar's 200 million dollar animated feature that's coming out in two weeks right next to The Flash is going to underperform. Like everybody is convinced this movie is not going to pop. We've all seen the trailer. We've seen it 10 times and it just looks fine it just looks fine right and fine doesn't work when your movie costs 200 million dollars and fine doesn't work when it comes from the house of mouse and fine doesn't work when it comes out in the summer and it definitely doesn't work when it comes out after spider-man across the spider-verse don't know if you guys have heard about this movie but (laughs) it's a banger like and it's huge and it's big and it's bold and it's visually distinct and people think the world of it and and while elemental isn't necessarily going for the same audience i'd say firmly it's aimed at families um you could also look at something like the super mario brothers movie from illumination that is like one of the highest grossing films this year clear to billy as predicted by your boys here at off script (laughs) and is continuing to do great like neither of these are disney productions disney of course the house of mouse built by the, the the very hands of walt disney on the page of his animation studio animation is what built this company now suddenly it doesn't seem to be working. I, I, I do want to talk about quickly who they laid off here. There's a couple of names that are worth knowing. But before I jump into that and then kind of my larger impressions of where Disney's headed with Pixar, because I got hot takes on this. Andy, uh, what do you think about Elemental? Are you at all stoked for this movie? I mean, is this a trend for Pixar? What was the last Pixar movie you saw that you liked? Uh, probably Turning Red. Turning Red was pretty good, but... Um... I feel like Disney's been sabotaging Pixar for the last few years. Uh, three of their last four releases have been straight to Disney Plus, and they more or less trained audiences to stay home when it comes to Pixar and animation. Um, Lightyear grossly underperformed, and it, it, it was a miss among uh, critics. And now I feel like Elemental is being set up to to fail because it. Elemental looks fine, but this should have come out sometime in the spring. It would have been a big spring hit, easily took the weekend. It's going to get creamed against The Flash and also competing against Transformers and and Spider-Verse. There's just no way. So I feel like Disney is setting this movie up to fail, and then they can just cut more jobs at Pixar, possibly shuttle them entirely because uh, they just haven't... Pixar's not really what it was. They used to help define animation and storytelling, and now their movies just remind me of other Pixar movies I've already seen. I agree. I think I think Disney's setting this movie up to fail. I don't think they obviously intended for it to, but at some point they realized this isn't going to work, and now it's just kind of going to go out and you know it's just going to go out and die that's that's what's going to happen to elemental uh, it's kind of the same thing they did to strange world uh, which we saw for this for this show i think I, I don't know if andy saw it i saw it 
um, which I actually liked. I thought Strange World was good, but it was stunningly progressive uh, to a point where just recently a teacher in Florida was catching flack for showing it to her students, which is wild news. Uh, but they also did this to, God, what was that movie? Tre- Treasure Planet. They killed Treasure Planet before it came out. They were like, it's too weird. We don't think it's going to work. Like when you get to the point where you're big enough and you can swing your your, your your checkbook around at any problem, like sometimes it's not worth promoting a feature if it's going to make you look worse. Uh, it's worth mentioning the last time Pixar cut jobs was in 2013, just before the release of The Good Dinosaur, which is widely hailed as one of Pixar's weakest. Uh, they postponed that film and laid off 30 people, including that director. Uh, now, just before Elemental, 75 people get cut. And it's worth mentioning those 30 were also exactly they were also high up in the creative lines about 1200 employees at pixar these 75 uh, from this elemental firing include lightyear director angus mclean who's a 26 year animator at the studio who worked on films like toy story 4 and coco and galen seussman producer of lightyear she's been with the studio since toy story in 1995 galen seussman great bit of film trivia here she's the woman that saved toy story 2 if you never heard that story basically pixar almost accidentally deleted all of toy story 2 Right, right at the end of its render, which back then took like three months to render a movie that size. This woman had the only backup on her computer. Save the film, save the studio. Uh, she has been let go. I do think it's time for a change <laughs> creatively. So I can't say that these are good or bad cuts, but I do think something's got to change at, at Disney. Are you with me so far, Andy? I'm here. Mm. So um, go, go ahead. Yeah, it, it, exactly. It's a rough time for Pixar and animation. The uh, the pandemic didn't help. Um, but it, again, Disney used to be define. They were defining the medium. They, they were responsible for the essentially the animation renaissance uh, of the early '90s and in through the 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 2000s. And it used to be whatever Disney was doing, everyone else was trying to emulate in some some forks. So, you know, DreamWorks is is kind of one of their direct competitors. But now, I mean, it's embarrassing seeing into, across the Spider-Verse and then just a week before we had to sit through an uninspired remake of The Little Mermaid. And, and it's like, where's the inspiration? Where's the imagination? The Imagineers that that we heard so much about, like Disney used to call the shots in this space and now they're falling way behind. Yeah, and it's not just in their animation department, right, at Pixar. It's everywhere. Like, their live-action films are running out of runway. Like, they're, they're pivoting to Moana. They're going to start doing their, like, more recent animated features because they're running out of movies to adapt. So regardless of what you think of the creative strategy behind those features, um, they don't have many more to do. Marvel is flattening, and people are becoming less and less interested. Those ticket sales are continuing to do fine to decline uh star wars can't get back in a theater and their animated sector is not going anywhere whether that be disney animated features like strange world or what pixar is doing what is happening to the house of mouse like why aren't they putting out good features anymore it seemed like at least during the pandemic you could pin this on bob chapik new ceo new direction but now bob Iger's back in the seat and it's becoming really obvious like these are like decade-old strategies here like, these are things that were working five or ten years ago that don't work anymore, right? Um, it seems like it might be time for a change, which is why I think maybe moving some people around at Pixar is a good idea, because I don't know where the studio is headed from here other than back into sequelitis. That's what I think. And there's there's a bit of a schedule with Pixar movies that I'm happy to discuss quickly uh, to explain that. But Andy, you would agree, right? Like, they're, Pixar's not, not in a good spot. 
No, no. Uh, most of their their last few films have been uh, again. So we we have uh, Lightyear, underperformed. Uh, we had Soul. Soul was great, but it came straight to Disney Plus on Christmas Day, so it it just not a whole lot of people saw it. It didn't become kind of the cultural phenomenon that a lot of these uh, movies tend to be. Because that's that's the other thing is like a lot of these big studios like Disney. Disney doesn't just their product isn't film, their product is culture. And when you start making mediocrity, you're not making, you're not having the cultural impact that you have uh, for decades. But then uh, kind of before that, they had Turning Red, which which was great, but that that ended up going straight to Disney Plus when it was supposed to have a theatrical release. And that's probably the the best of the last kind of four films they've made. Before that, it, w- it was Luca, which went straight to Disney Plus, And then um, Onward. Onward. Onward, which was a theatrical release, but it was right at the beginning of the pan- pandemic, and it was still kind of a smaller Pixar film. I want to talk about this the cycle of Pixar real fast because I think I think we can see where they're headed. Um, when Pixar started, it was independent of Disney. Uh, their first few features uh, from '95 to like I don't know, 2004, 2005 were all like childlike, imaginative ideas. What if your toys came to life? What if the monsters in your closet were real? What if bugs could talk? Right? Like, what if cars could talk? What if fish could talk? Like, very simple, like basic ideas um, that were really imaginative and fun. But then they get acquired by Disney in 2006, and this is where Pixar enters sequel era. Right? Toy Story 2, Cars 3. Uh, Cars 2, what what was there? Finding Dory, right? Monsters University, Incredibles 2, Toy Story 4. Like they're working on that from 2006 to like 2019. And they do alternate years in there. Like they'll do, you know, Monsters University and then Brave. They did uh, Cars 3 and then Coco. Like you will get some bangers in there. Inside Out comes comes out in there. But for the most part, that's what Pixar's doing. Sequel, Actual film, sequel, actual film, a couple variations. But then after Toy Story 4, like Disney lets up and says, okay, we're going to let you guys do your own thing. And that's when they make Onward, Soul, Luca, and Turning Red. And all of those are like fine, but they're really high concept and people can't really get into them. Following that, you jump into Lightyear, which was a big miss. And now we're doing Elemental. Like it seems really obvious that they're heading right back into sequel territory, most especially because of Bob Iger's announcement in February that Pixar is doing Toy Story 5. Like they're going to they're going to pull the reins back and go, nope, you had your chance to do creative stuff. We gave you five movies in a row and none of them popped. And part of that's the freaking pandemic. And part of that's Disney putting it on Disney Plus and Bob Bob Chapek's decisions. Like I totally get that. But like also. They're, they're high concept movies. Soul is not for everybody, right? Luca is not for everybody. Um, I don't know. So that's where I think they're going. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just a matter of time before we're getting live action, Toy Story, live action, Incredibles. Um, it, it's not looking good. And, it, and it, I hate to see things going into sequ- sequelitis, uh, Toy Story 5. Like, uh, please just let these characters rest. Like, I guarantee you there's thousands upon thousands of creative authors out there that have an incredible story. If you would just interview someone and not just do toy story again, um, which is a shame because the first three toy stories a great. It's a perfect trilogy. And now they're just adding more. Pixar's next two films uh, coming out in 2024, at least currently scheduled to are Elio, an exciting story of a young prince who travels the galaxy and has to save the universe and inside out Two, And that's Pixar. I I think inside out too. I'm not kidding. That's a real thing. That's coming out June next year. Uh, At least currently, that's what that's scheduled for. Yeah, like yes, like they're they're just doing the sequel thing again. Like that's where we're headed. 
um, it's a bummer. Like, it's not a good thing, you know? And I, I think, it, like, this is functionally Disney's game to lose. I, I know they've got that new movie Wish coming out where the animation's, like, a little different. But, like, dude, I just came out of Spider-Verse. Like, if you're That's not throwing That's in the vein up, of Frozen. Yeah, if you're not throwing up, like, insane color saturation and, like, wild layer effects... Like, I don't know if it's going to do it for me anymore, right? Like, it, it, it's, it's, it feels like it's the next step in animation, and Disney is lagging far behind. And it's like, you guys have got to get it together. Like, they need to call up their head of animation and have a serious conversation about the future of the company. Because, like, I know animation doesn't hold them up anymore, but by God, it's what sells tickets to parks. Like, you guys better get it together, you know? This is a big deal. Again, that's, what, that's part of what, what I mean by, um, you know, exporting culture is that you... You want to not just make a good movie, but a movie that is like a part of a child's life that they will remember. And they say, I want to go to Disney and see The Little Mermaid because that was the first movie I I went to. Um, You know, and that's the kind of thing you're missing out when you're just doing a bunch of sequels that no one remembers and are kind of babysitting tools. Yeah, it's such a it's such a mess, dude. I hope Disney gets it together. I think there's a lot of talent at that studio. Um with that, we should probably move into our final film of the episode. Andy, you got the summary for this? I sure do. Oh, please, take it away. Triangle of Sadness. Balenciaga. NHM. Balenciaga. NHM. So, uh, this film was the uh, last year's Palme d'Or w- winner at Cannes and was nominated for uh, three Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and also Best Screenplay. It's kind of surprising. Uh, for those, because this is uh, a foreign film, uh, Ruben Osland has previously done Force Majeure, it was a Swedish film, The Square also, um, and he he kind of has this style of social satire, very dry kind of humor, uh, Force Majeure is, 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 is a classic, they made a terrible American comedy version of it that's not very good, but anyways, Triangle of Sadness uh, is about a a kind of group of people who go out on this luxury cruise um, and they're incredibly wealthy and we get to meet both the very wealthy and then the uh, people working on the boat. This, a lot of, this sounds like a, a lot of um, reality TV has this exact same uh, premise. Um, but we kind of meet our, our main-ish characters uh, early on in Harris Dickinson and uh, Charles B. Dean who are up-and-coming models Um trying to become a part of, of the wealthy elite. They are not in that circle, but they kind of look like uh, they are. They have this big argument kind of about money in, in the first act before we end up on the boat. Uh, we meet a number of different personalities, a lot of old wealthy people who are completely out of touch with just regular people and who ask for ridiculous things and have ridiculous expectations um, and are kind of also the causes of their own problem. Uh, the trailer gives a lot away, but eventually there's a big storm. Everything kind of goes wrong, and uh, the, the ship kind of or people are, are eventually stranded on an island. That's our overarching uh, plot, but it's more about like the characters and, and relationships and kind of day to day awkward uh, circumstances between the very wealthy and just normal people. Uh, so, Zach, what do you think? I like this movie. Uh, I don't love it, unfortunately. I, 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 this seemed to come out like right next to a few features that were kind of like spearing the ultra, ultra, ultra rich and, and ultra elite. Uh, I'll like the menu last year, uh, but we missed it for the show, and now it's on Hulu, which is where we watched it. And and uh, while I think it is 
it's got some fangs for sure. Like there's some really funny bits. Um, that's they're like really biting. Uh, it is like left kind of toothless by like just it's it's beating of a runtime. The pacing in this movie is oh, really poor. It's really poor pacing, and I can't decide why. I haven't. I like. I still think about it. Like, why is this movie so long for what's there? Because if it was like a tight ninety-five minutes, I would think so much more of it as like this charming, like bright spot in a sea of other, like otherwise, like kind of dull films. Like Triangle of Sadness does a lot really well, but it's so agonizingly slow, and I don't. I don't think it helps the movie. I think. I think it kind of hurts it. It almost feels like a series. To me, uh, act one is about 25 minutes long and is just our, our two fashion leads um, who are arguing about money and, and kind of gender roles. And then we don't get then we get to the boat for act two. And that's a, an, that's an entire hour. And act three is also an, an entire hour. Um, and it's almost like you could just start on the boat. You could cut down that argument and have them or just have acts two and three be shorter. But it just. It it feels like like I said it feels like a series. Add another episode or two and call this a limited series. But it's like you said it's agonizingly slow. There are some funny parts. Uh, Ruben Olsen has very kind of dry humor, and a lot of his humor is about awkward and uncomfortable conversations that that people end end up having. Um, but it's also this critique of the of the wealthy is like kind of a. Well, duh, that's like saying that an arms dealer is a bad guy. And it's like, well, yeah, of course, wealthy people are completely out of touch and are, you know, not great people a lot of times. They're not, he's not really telling us anything we don't already know. Yeah, it's, it's a, it walks this fine line between wealth and beauty. And it questions like, is, like, is beauty inherently, does that, does that inherently derive wealth or is it all a wash? Like can 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 you derive wealth from the ugly, like the the uninspired, like the the disgusting even? Uh, and this has worked most effectively through its presentation of characters, namely uh, Char, Char Charlie Char Carl and Yaya uh, are two kind of like fashion model leads uh, who are in a relationship, and uh, these characters on the boat, one of them, namely a Russian uh, fertilizer dealer is that his thing uh, or is he like an arms yeah, dealer yeah. and that was just a gag i could never no no he's a fur he, no, he's a fertilizer yeah dealer. and he, he he says he he sells you know uh fertilizer uh it, it, he states it very openly and this man like looks like the crypt keeper and looks disgusting and is like greasy and like his girlfriend is gross and <laughs> <laughs> it 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 brings into question like what does it mean to like be beautiful and and it is that is that of any value at all or is that just derived by society do people think that we should give money to beautiful people because they're beautiful or, or what this works out most effectively in in the presentation of the cruise ship i think that's its strongest act this kind of section two uh when we have our serving class uh, a bunch of like very energetic, like, like very, very bright, poppy, uh, young uh, waiters and waitresses that are helping out deckhands and stuff that are helping around the boat uh, who are never going to say no to anything. And the people on the boat who are just like vapid and narcissistic <laughs> and completely in their own worlds uh, and couldn't care less. Right. And, and most of the serving staff are very attractive people and half the wealthy people are like ugly as sin. Uh, and and are terrible people and talk about awful things and treat each other terribly. Um, 
and it's it's a clever commentary, I think, and it 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 gets. I think it's best when it's visual, like like the big, the really the big wreck and the storm that turns into like the ship getting washed up on land. It's a whole thing. I I think I enjoyed the third act uh better when they um the there there's kind of they get shipwrecked and like half the people end up on this island and it turns into a little bit of Lord of the Flies situation where all of a sudden the people with wealth are useless and also have nothing to offer because you have some of the uh kind of deckhands who actually know how to like start fires and catch fish and these sort of things and all of a sudden the power dynamics uh dramatically shift because of you know the what is actually useful in in this situation and to me that that was a, a very interesting uh more interesting part of the movie it still drags in the, that as well just it's just so undisciplined. I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm surprised it's got a Best Picture nomination. Yeah, like it reminded me cinematography wise of uh, David Fincher because David Fincher shoots everything on a tripod and is infamously thought of like a just shut up and shoot it kind of director. Like he's complicated, but like he just locks his he locks the camera on a tripod and he sets up the scene and then shoot it and then all right move the camera and tripod next scene like really simple. And it's the same way. Camera's always locked down, very solid, like very very set but it just doesn't go anywhere like it's just it's just a little too slow some of those cruise ship scenes are like agonizingly long and the fight that carl and yaya having act one is like really vain and you don't really care it does have some funny moments uh, namely with uh harris dickinson in an elevator but i agree i think andy's right the meat of it's in act three that's where the real lesson comes from when power dynamics shift and suddenly the people who are on the boat like who are who are the wait staff and the deckhands now have skills on the island for survival and the wealthy people have nothing to offer and suddenly things change but i like this i like this through line that it's got of of that things will never change like in this this fear that like it, this is how things will always be when uh one of our characters is uh, played delightfully by i got it what is her name i got it. dolly dolly de leon in act three who's great in this movie i've never seen her in anything else i hope she does more stuff i see she's great in this movie uh she is a what is she a maid she was a custodian basically on the yeah. boat and now on the island has skills and has decided well i'm gonna be the leader here and tell everybody what to do and the wealthy people are like well that's not fair and she's like okay what are you gonna do now huh where you go out in the woods and die and as soon as like that is challenged in any way, everybody immediately writes her off as useless again, despite, <laughs> despite the fact that she would be ultimately like the thing that would save them. Like it's funny and it's sharp. It just, it's dulled by the, just the time to get there. Like just a lot of time between activity uh, where I think you're supposed to just kind of like sit in your seat and think thoughtfully about what you're seeing, but like watching it at home, like makes it tough to not just like get your phone out. Right. And see if somebody texted you or go, go change I had laundry. To, I had to take a break for about a half hour and do something else. Cause I just didn't have like the mental focus to kind of uh, get through, get through it. It was really, I was just great. And it's one of those movies. It, it is very fun to discuss once you've seen it. Cause there are a lot of interesting concepts and things that happen, but it was such a chorty. I mean, it's two and a half hours. It is so long and so slowly paced. Um, I wanted to t talk about, uh, so force majeure was kind of the movie that port put Ruben Austin on, on the map. And part of what's fascinating in that film, uh, the premise is, uh, a father kind of <laughs> abandons his, his family, uh, when an, a catastrophe is imminent, 
the catastrophe doesn't happen and all of a sudden he looks really bad for having kind of abandoned uh just briefly like run run from this big thing that was about to happen and the conversation keeps coming up uh, again like uh his wife keeps bringing it up to every new people they meet because they're on this like uh at this resort but it it's very interesting look at like family dynamics and gender roles and, and has some really interesting things to say and look at. And that's kind of what I feel we're missing here. Like we're not telling, we're not being told anything we don't know about wealth and power. A little bit. And unfortunately it's not told in like a, a way that I think is accessible enough for most people. Like I think this would alienate more people than it would appeal to. But in that way, I should say, um, it's niche. And if you're into this niche, if you're into this like recent run of like jabs at the wealthy and elite uh, via like tar or the menu, like I, I don't think it's a bad time. Just, yeah, maybe watch it in bits. Like I think Ruben Oslin might be better with the series next. Like give him, you know, three episodes of something or six on some, you know, some streamer and like let him run a little bit. Like I think, I think he would play with the runtime more because this one's just like, it's a really specific choice. I just don't understand it. Like it, it, it just kind of ends up being really offbeat. Um, well, and, and I, again, I wonder if maybe just the subject matter is the reason it was winning all these awards and getting nominated. Cause I, I mean, it was just such a drag. Like it won Palme d'Or. It was nominated for best picture and best director. And I was like, man, really, this has been a struggle. Like I'd rather go watch tar again. <laughs> yeah tar also super long uh but very fun obviously rooted by Kate blanchett uh yeah I, I thought this movie was good also real quick we should mention uh, woody harrelson is for me a bright spot in this movie but he's not in enough of it he's he's uh not in enough of this movie to really stand out but he boy they put him on every piece of advertising they could. <laughs> so you know good for them hey like he's a great get um yeah, I'm I'm really not sure why his character is in this movie at all. He's not in it very much. He doesn't really have an impact. I um, feel like he must have just been friends with some, you know, I don't know, somebody of Ruben Osland or somebody. Somebody knows maybe him. They, maybe they just need to attach a big name. Maybe. Andy, would you recommend Triangle of Sadness? Oof. Uh, only to the most diehard cinephile wanting to look at this movie that that. There was a, a lot of buzz last year at, at Cannes and also at the Oscars. And, uh, I mean, I, I think he is a talented director. He just needed someone to rein him in. Um, there's a lot of interesting ideas. Like I said, it's more fun to discuss after you've seen it than it is to sit through it. Um, watch it in parts if you're interested, uh, but probably not for everyone. Yeah, I, I'm in the same boat, I think. Like I said, it's niche. Like, if you're into this kind of cinema, like, I think you'll have a good time. But I think even you would admit, like, it getting out of it, like, it, it is a little slow, man. Like, it just takes a while to get to where it's headed. But it's full in that way. Like, there are a lot of good gags in there. Like, lots of really funny, subtle stuff, whether that be, like, really slapsticky or more, like, thoughtful and pulled back. Like... I like Triangle Satisfying. I'll go see what Ruben Oslin does next. Like I, I, it's, I think it's my first outing with him as a director. Like not bad, I would say, but just stuff to get through. Also, yeah, content warning. The second act is turns pretty disgusting. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We should uh, talk about what we're doing next week. Andy, what are we doing next week? Well, I'm doing some traveling, so we're actually going to be on break, but we're going to come back with uh, Transformers Rise of the, of the Beast, which comes out this Friday in theaters only. And also The Flash, the long-awaited uh, <laughs> Ezra Miller <laughs> vehicle. Um, that's in theaters June 16th, so we'll be coming back with those two. F- 
following week and also uh, just an FYI release uh, Elemental releases also on June 16th same day as The Flash also straight to theater so there's enough for the whole family tons of we said this a while ago that like June was going to be absolutely packed with big films yeah uh, and packed it is yeah excited for all of these not so excited about Transformers Andy's more hyped than I am I'm not sure why I feel fine about Flash, uh, and I'm not really excited about Elemental either, but I think I'll end up going and seeing it. So if I do, we'll do a mini review. Uh, or I don't know, we'll save it for the next week. We'll, we'll figure it out. Either way, if you enjoyed the show today, if you like what we're talking about here, if you liked our reviews, caught hot takes, the best way you can get in contact with, with us is to email us, mail at It's direct. comes right to us. You can also leave a comment on the Facebook video where you might be watching this on our Facebook page where we live stream the show every Tuesday. Uh, you might be commenting on YouTube where we post our content. A lot of cool things going on, on YouTube. A lot of cool things happening on YouTube. You should go check us out over there. We're also on Twitter, on Instagram. You can find our website, offscriptfilmreview.com, and you can leave us correspondence anywhere you like. The best way to help your boys here at Offscript is just subscribe to the show to get new episodes delivered straight to your phone every single Tuesday, except for next week because we're off. You know, it happens. And, uh, you know, leave a rating and review while you're at it. Let people know what you think. Helps us out a ton and uh, might even make you feel a little good inside. And really, that's what this show is all about. That and movies. So, thanks for listening to Off Script, uh, the home of Bold Cinema. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.